welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Laura Lee Cascada. Laura has a number of different roles in the animal rights movement, but we wanted to especially catch up with her about her recent campaign to forestall an octopus farm in Hawaii. This is a classic example of how much one committed person can do to change the trajectory of animal harm. And it's very inspiring. She has so many roles within the animal rights movement and, you know, she's doing a lot of great things. But when I just think that wildlife and we talk about this a bit, wildlife activism is really an opportunity for us to step out of, you know, our regular roles and us get engaged in a specific campaign like it kind of reminds me of the Thule elk campaigns that we've talked about and and other things. I think they're they really energize people and you know they do unbelievable amounts of good especially when as happened here the the activism comes early so you could actually keep something from happening. So this is great. Laura of course has been on before. It was a pretty long time ago. I actually didn't really look how long ago it was. And it was about her book, Delhi's Run, which is a novel about a chicken who plays baseball. And uh, that was a great interview as well. And But it's been a long time since she's been on and she is just a terrific activist. Very excited to chat about this. And yes, I love multifaceted activists so much. So before we get to some of these articles we wanted to cover for Rising Anxieties, which we've moved to the top of the show as an experiment. And by the way, we have been getting mixed reviews from you about whether you like it at the top of the show or not at the top of the show. So <laughs> I don't know what to do with that, but we're getting your emails and we appreciate you. And we'll keep we'll keep shifting things as need be. I just want to say it was just my birthday. Uh, do I sound older now? Wiser, maybe? More tired, I think. Worn out. Okay. Fatigued. Okay. Well, yes, all of the above, but I did have a really lovely birthday. More intelligent, Thank more you. mature, oh. sophisticated. Go on. No, that's it. Go on. I'm done. Okay. Well, I appreciate you had a little get together for me and you made a cocktail and you called it Jasmine's birthday, which I just want to say I think was very clever of you. And uh, I happen to love that cocktail. I would drink that right now. In fact, if it was in front of me, even though it was not my birthday, maybe you could make a different version of it and call it not Jasmine's birthday. And I'll drink that instead. <laughs> yeah, I I really just decided to call it that on the spur of the moment. And it was not anything elaborate. It was just apple cider and and spiced rum and a little seltzer. But yeah, I thought it was nice. It was a very fallish kind of cocktail. Yeah, totally. It was really fun. We did some improv. We we hung out. You hated the improv, but the rest of it was fun. I love my friends. Oh, don't don't like we could spend the entire podcast episode talking about how much I hated the improv. Okay. That aside, I just want to thank you, Marianne, and I want to thank our listeners and our flock member for really stepping up this year because our end of year fundraising is underway. And so if you want to become a flock member and you aren't, or if you want to renew your flock membership, we have some new levels and new perks that we are offering. All of your donations will be doubled dollar for dollar up to $25,000, assuming we get that 25000 So just to reiterate, this is our big annual fundraising pitch. 
It doesn't mean that you personally have to give us $25,000. I just want to make that clear. Any donation helps. It's the total amount that we're going for. Well, you just discouraged someone who was about to give us 25000 from doing it. So, <laughs> Well, you can. Way to go. You can, but you don't have to. Well, I, I want to thank a very special Barnyard benefactor this week, Sarah Murray, who I've gotten to know a little bit through the Our Hen House world. And Sarah, thank you so much for being a Barnyard benefactor and for helping us to keep Our Hen House going all these years. We just really appreciate you. Okay, so Marianne, let's do some rising anxieties here. What what have we got today? Well, first of all, I just want to say, I don't know why, maybe I'm just not keeping up, but uh, I was unaware that we'd gotten feedback on how some people don't like rising anxieties here and some people do. So now mm. I feel uncomfortable. If you're one of those people who don't like it, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> do you not like rising anxieties at all? No, they or love rising anxieties. Or... I think that what it what they don't like is me, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a paranoid answer for you. Well, anyway, we can't please everyone, though we will try our very best to please the vast majority of you. I think Vicky told me that it was good to do it in the beginning because if I said something funny, there was somebody there to laugh instead of me just laughing at my own jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Which there you go. I guess was meant to be constructive criticism. So I tried not to take it too hard. Amazing. So tell us what's going on this week, Marianne. All right. First of all, from meetingplace.com, we have a commentary from our favorite, my favorite, Hannah Thompson Weeman, who is now president and CEO of the Animal Agriculture Alliance. We knew her when. And this is her Animal Ag Watch column. The best defense is a good offense. And she starts off by saying, the Alliance team spends a lot of time helping consumer-facing protein brands. They like to call dead animals protein. Uh, as well as our restaurant, retail, and food service partners navigate pressure campaigns from animal rights extremist organizations. That's what she calls us. She likes to throw that word extremist around. Pressure campaigns, she goes on to say, are a frequently employed tactic of extremists pushing for brands to adopt policies for their supply chain under the guise of concern over animal welfare or sustainability. We're just pretending to care about those things. So she points out that behind the scenes, what we're really trying to do with these kind of campaigns is reduce efficiency and drive up the cost of food. And by raising the cost of animal protein, plant-based options may become more attractive. That's what she thinks we're thinking. And she is, as is so often the case, completely right. That's exactly my goal in doing these things because the, the reforms that they put in are usually pathetically minimal. And, and you know, it's like cage-free eggs, which... It's enormous to get hens out of cages. Uh, I, I don't mean to to undermine how horrible cages are, but let's face it, when you get them out of cages, it doesn't really mean that you're putting them in, in, in a good situation. Then she points out that all of these quotes from, from quote-unquote extremists <laughs> saying uh, how they need to find, quoting us saying, or people like us saying, uh, we need to find a vulnerable target prepare, assemble an overwhelming force. So good. You know, I'm glad to see that animal rights groups are on, on the job. And she points out that right now, the key issues we see pressure campaigns focused around are quote unquote enforcement of previous animal welfare commitments on sow housing and cage-free eggs. She explains that the reason she put enforcement in quotations is because we don't have any or authority 
to enforce anything. And she is right. That's always been a problem with these campaigns, which got companies to make actual commitments to do these things. Now they're not doing it. And she seems to think that's fine because we can't force them to do it. She leaves that. I mean, she just completely glides over the fact that they previously committed to doing it. And, you know, apparently that was just bullshit. So her most important tactic for the industry is to ignore us. And the most important advice she has to give is for them to proactively define animal welfare and sustainability means to them. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> her big suggestion on that, and she's, she characterizes it as being in the driver's seat on animal welfare and sustainability, is to endorse the existing programs, you know, all of the bullshit programs that they already have that are absolutely horrible. And that's that's their plan for the future. It's also always been their plan, like just to make up these crazy, stupid animal welfare policies that do virtually nothing. Uh, and, and you know, stick with them. She concludes by saying the best defense to misinformation, uh, misinformation, is a good offense of proactively demonstrating the animal agriculture community's commitment to being good stewards of the land, responsible caretakers of livestock and poultry, and positive contributors to our communities. Take the opportunity now to make sure you are telling your brand sustainability and animal welfare story loudly and proudly. She leaves out the fact that maybe you're going to get sued for, uh, you know, claiming that you're being humane when you're not, which, you know, we're doing quite a bit of. Yeah, I shouldn't put that in there. She's a peach, that Hannah. I was just going to say, like, I like peaches. <laughs> she was talking about the antidote to misinformation, but she's not talking about the antidote to a complete void of information. And I think that that void of information right now in today's media landscape and social media landscape and meat industrial complex, landscape, whatever the hell landscape you want to talk about. That to me is the problem. Just conveniently, as you said, skimming over certain information and and coming up with these really resolute opinions based on nothing. Anyway, wow. It's all just a scam. Every little bit of it is a scam. So bring on the lawsuits. That's my and and make sure you, you use statutes in, under which you can get attorney's fees. Make the lawyers rich. All right. Our second story is from porkbusiness.com. I read the most entertaining publications. Iowa elementary students invited on virtual journey to explore pig farm life. Talk about a scam. This is, you know, Iowa, which is pork country. Elementary school students, according to this article, which is one by Paige Carlson, these students are in for an exciting educational adventure. They're doing a tour, a virtual tour. It's a, I think this is a live live feed. It's scheduled for a specific day where they want all these teachers to get this, their kids onto this live tour of Todd and Denise Wiley's pig farm in Benton County. Yeah, I, I bet they do. And the things they're going to show them is how farmers ensure the safety of their pigs. Yeah, I see a little like... I bet there's a few, key, you know, confinement systems in there. The structure of hog buildings. Well, there's an interesting topic that every kid wants to learn about. And the pig's diet. Uh, this is specifically for elementary school students. And, and teachers are being given a comprehensive kit and related resources so that they can actually not just do this, but then integrate agriculture. Of course, what they're talking about is pig 
agriculture into their curriculum effectively, emphasizing that it's this isn't just a one-time event, but it's a lens through which students can can explore science and social studies and all sorts of things. So if you think that they're not out there trying to convert kids, well, they don't really have to convert them. They just have to keep them on track to, uh, you know, not care about it. I think it's a kind of combination of probably really humane washing, you know, giving them the impression that things are much better than they are and actually kind of enculturating them to things that um, are really horrifying so they think it's okay. Just like the tours, the, the tours of farms that we've talked about. It's, it's a combination. They're much, much better than the average factory farm by and large, but they still kind of teach people that this is how it's appropriate to treat animals. You know, people are fucking stupid. So, of course, you know, they just are like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Right. And Wiley says, I hope the kids get a basic understanding of what goes on inside the barns, an opportunity they might not have had otherwise. Yeah, I really hope that, too. Really hope that that is exactly what's happening here. He adds, we hope they remember these animals are well cared for and treated with a great amount of respect. Wow. Boy, they're after the kids, that's for sure. Well, and I'm obviously horrified for all of the reasons that you can imagine the first and foremost, just it's disgusting to show a sanitized version of what's actually going on with the horrid overcrowding and antibiotic overuse and all of the other welfare concerns that are why we do this. And the biased presentation is also loathsome. But on a broader level, the commercialization of education here and in other, you know, examples that we've been giving in previous weeks, I I wonder if that ever gets people's hackles up. I mean, people who don't even concern themselves necessarily with like animal rights, would they be concerned about this like increase, what I see as an increasing involvement of commercial interests in education? It, it seems like, like you just said, they're after the kids and they're trying to influence their young mushy minds in favor of these practices. And I hate that shit. There you go. I admire your optimism and thinking that people are going to care. But, you know, I'm sure some people will care. And I do think that, that you know, people don't like the idea of things being, quote unquote, forced down their throat and, and their kids being enculturated. But, you know, I don't think most people really care. Like, I, if, if it was PETA in there, they would care. That's for sure. Can I tell you a funny PETA story before we go on to the third story? Sure. I got to my my office the, for WXXI. I received a, a package from PETA on my birthday. And it, it just randomly, I guess I'm marked as vegan-friendly media or something. It was just such a random thing to get. It was this lawn sign for Halloween that was like a grave. And it said, don't be a graveyard, stop eating animals or something like that. And it was like, it it was huge. So I had this like huge package waiting for me. And I opened it. And like the people around me were like, oh, you ordered that to the office. (laughs) It was so weird. Uh, I was like, no, I didn't. I didn't order it. But anyway, thank you for whoever, to whoever sent me that. Next time, send me chocolate, please. And I'll share it. I'm not sure that was that funny a story. Well, I thought it was... Is that a funny, funny story? Well, maybe. Now I'm questioning maybe everything. Funny, funny at the time. 
funny, not funny, haha. I maybe maybe it was funny at the time because I thought it was going to be like some great present or something, and it was a, a sign. I yeah, that that is disappointment is always hilarious. Yeah, well that they did enclose some chocolates too, right? There was one cookie. I did eat it immediately. So there was that. All right. What else do we have? All right. Finally, this is a story from the UK. And this is from our friends at Plant Based News. And they are also commenting on uh, the the blatant manifestation of uh, rising anxieties by the government, the conservative government. The environment minister says the UK has, quote, highest animal welfare standards, what are those standards? It's by one Polly Foreman. She's pointing to something that has always really been the case. Like the people, and I thought it had kind of gotten better, and maybe it has gotten better, but clearly it still exists. And that that's people in the UK really love animals. I mean, they are a nation of animal lovers more than other countries, I think. And they always have this impression that their agriculture is so much better than other people's agriculture around the world. And, you know, it probably is a little better than ours. Uh, I'm not saying it's not. But wow, it's not like it's fine. It's horrible. And it's more and more and more of factory farming. But they, they, they love to keep up this illusion that people have that somehow, you know, the animals are all just frolicking around on their verdant green fields. So this Conservative Party conference was held in Manchester, and the Secretary of State for the Environment, one Therese Coffey, she thinks that the country's animal welfare standards are just great. She attacked green zealots and their fake meat, which she said was for astronauts. And she just kind of, as this article says, put forward the sort of romanticized view of British farming that's become common belief among the general public. Exactly. I mean, people are, you know, everybody's under an illusion, but I think they actually face the truth a little bit more about animal agriculture. And then they lie about British animal agriculture even even more ridiculously. She's absolutely not going to tell anyone that they should not eat meat. And when she thinks of a meat feast, she wants people to think about Great Welsh lamb or Aberdeen Angus beef or saddleback pork, not some pizza topping. It's just evidence that the government, uh, you know, is continuing. It's not just that they're not doing anything, not that they're just not improving anything, but they're actively participating in this myth, this absolute myth. Uh, and as this article points out, the idea that the UK has high animal welfare standards has been circulating for years, propped up by successive governments. So it's not just this government. There's constant media endorsements of the way UK farmers treat animals. They're constantly harping on the idea that British meat is inextricably ethical. And th this article goes through really the way all animals are raised in, in the UK. And, it's, you know, it's pretty typical factory farming. There's a few things that are a little better, like they don't have gestation crates for, for mother pigs, but they have farrowing crates, so they're confined. And, you know, even when they're not in crates, the, the systems are absolutely horrifying. 85% of the 1.2 billion animals killed every year are raised intensively. It's just, you know, the scam just continues. And just acting like there's standards where there aren't. It's the classic bait and switch. Obviously, it's it's completely vital that this kind of information get out there, that we bridge the gap between perception and reality, that we uphold 
these values that we talk about that I that I think many people share. Do you think that articles like this from plant-based news wind up on the desks of non-vegans? I mean, no, I don't. How can we take what you called or what they called the this romanticized image of British farming and like have it kind of pivot to be a uh, a moment for introspection? And, and transparency and, and change. I mean, we've been reporting on these stories for years. Well, that's what we're all working on. Uh, I'm not sure I have the answer, Like, but that's what everybody who's listening to this is working on. And Fix it. It's a scam, and we have to fight it all the time. And I'm not saying that plant-based news doesn't have an effect. I think plant-based news does an amazing job. But clearly, there are none so blind as they who will not see, and people just do not want to see the reality of what's happening to animals. So, yeah, getting the word out there, arming activists with with information, you know, you know the you know the drill. We've been doing this for long enough. It's yes. it's tough. It's tough. But you know, the inspiring thing about rising anxieties is that the more you see this bullshit, the more you see like the environment minister feeling that she has to go out and talk about Welch lamb and and how green zealots and fake meat are terrible things. That's a sign that, you know, why is she talking about that and not something else? It's because her anxieties are rising. Perfect moment to transition to our beautiful interview with Laura Lee Cascada. Laura has led environmental and animal protection campaigns for 15 years, overseeing victories like the protection of Virginia's decades-long ban on uranium mining with the Sierra Club and putting vegan options on the menus of major chains like Starbucks and Subway with Animal Outlook. In her current role as Senior Director of Campaigns at the Better Food Foundation, she spearheads campaigns like Default Veg, which is making plant-based food the norm at universities, coffee shops, events, and lots more. Laura is also the founder of the Every Animal Project, a powerful storytelling blog with an upcoming print anthology series showcasing powerful true animal stories that help transform readers' relationships with animals. Her investigation of Kanaloa Octopus Farm in Hawaii exposed it at a petting zoo propping up the factory farming industry and led to its eventual shutdown. Laura is also the author of Delhi's Run, a novel, and her writing has been featured by outlets like One Green Planet, The Dodo, and The Ecologist. She has a master's degree in environmental policy from Johns Hopkins University, and Laura will be joining Marianne right after this. Remember when we came to you with the fabulous news that Dr. Bronner's, the ethical personal care company that we all know and totally love, was making chocolate? Well, now we have some even more exciting news to add to that. This fall, Dr. Bronner's is adding three flavors of oat milk chocolate to their magic all-one chocolate line. That makes 10 total flavors of ethically produced vegan chocolate goodness. The new flavors are crunchy hazelnut butter, creamy mocha latte, and golden milk chai. Oh my God, I cannot wait to try all of them. Though I personally am most excited about the creamy mocha latte because mocha and I, we go way back. The new oat milk chocolate flavors will be available on the Dr. Bronner's website and at select retailers nationwide beginning October 24th, 2023. These will be absolutely the perfect autumn treat. 
If you want to learn more about Dr. Bronner's magic all-one chocolate line, head over to drbronner.com. That's www.drbronner.com to find out more about the sourcing, ingredients, and production of the magic all-one chocolate line and try it out for yourself. that fruits and vegetables are often grown in non-vegan ways? Byproducts from animal agriculture like blood meal and feather meal and manure are frequently used as fertilizers, even on organic vegetable farms. Luckily, there is a type of farming and gardening that is totally vegan and organic called veganic growing. And this November, you can dive into the world of veganic farming and gardening at the Veganic Summit. The Veganic Summit is a three-day online event from November 10th to the 12th, 2023. And you can join the online Veganic Summit from anywhere in the world by signing up at veganicsummit.com. You can register for free to watch all of the presentations. How cool is that? Or you can upgrade to the affordable all-access pass for Q&As, networking events, a veganic ebook, and lots more. To learn how gardens and farms can be healthy, sustainable, and totally vegan, sign up today at veganicsummit.com. Welcome to our hen house, Laura. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, and I should say welcome back because of course you've been here before, but it's been a long time. And actually, when we decided we wanted to interview you again, there are lots and lots of things we wanted to interview you about, and we can touch on them. But the thing that really intrigued us was this recent campaign regarding the octopus farm, because it struck me that it's sort of a model for a grassroots campaign. And that I think, you know, our listeners, some of them are connected to the movement. Some of them just want to do something on their own. And I think you have so much to learn here from what you've done. And also, you wrote a lot of it down, your different steps in the process. So I really, really want to hear about the octopuses themselves. But I really also want to hear about the technique here. So I'm excited about it. And you made something really important happen. All right. First of all, before I start, is the plural okay as octopuses? Yes. Yes. Okay. There seems to be a lot of controversy around it, so I just wanted to make sure I was right. All right. Tell us a bit how you first found out about this place, Kanaloa Octopus Farm. Sure. Well, I was aware first about the controversy that I'm sure many of the listeners are aware of, of the impending octopus factory farm in the Canary Islands. It's been getting a lot of news attention and it's set to slaughter up to about 300,000 octopuses a year. So that was the first I had heard about this potential for this new octopus factory farming industry. My parents actually live on the big island of Hawaii and I just heard through the grapevine about this small octopus farm that existed there on the island, but it was very different in that it was sort of advertising itself as a tourist attraction. So you could go, you pay basically like a petting zoo, you pay to go in and pet the octopuses and interact with them. I knew at that point that I needed to find out more about what was happening here and why this facility existed. Well, yeah. Did you grow up there or your parents moved there later? 
They moved there about 10 years ago, but we spent a lot of my adolescence kind of going back and forth. We're originally from Virginia, so it's kind of a second home to me. Wow, that's amazing. And I'm sure that helped a lot. No, the more connections you have, as your story tells well, both because of your connections there and your connections within the movement, I think really helped. Okay, so you decided this personal visit was called for, which makes sense. And so tell us a little bit about it. What did you find out? Yeah, so I basically purchased a tourist ticket like anyone else would do and went in and filmed what I saw and anyone could see the things that I saw. I went in and it was about maybe 20 tanks, each one confining an octopus. These tanks were pretty small, like basically the size of a utility sink basin. Each octopus only had a little cave to hide in and maybe one or two rubber duckies to play with. And the saddest thing to me, I think, was that the tanks were sort of bordered along the top rim, bordered by this astroturf kind of spiky grass. So every time they would reach an arm out to try to escape, they would hit the astroturf and it might slow them down a little bit long enough for the tour guide to come along and kind of throw their arm back in and some of them would try many times and eventually the tour guide would just close up the lid so that they couldn't get out. So each one was living a very solitary existence and they all looked pretty afraid. They were trying to hide under their rocks and yeah, just a totally unnatural environment for these sea creatures. So what did they tell people that they were doing? People just are consistently confusing about animals. Why well, anybody would want to go to Hawaii and be in Hawaii and all the things you could do in Hawaii and would want to go see these poor animals living in sinks is beyond me. But, but so what did they tell people that they were doing that made this interesting to people? So they said that they were a research facility and all over their website, it was all about touting conservation, protecting the species. And really, if you kind of asked enough questions, you could kind of get behind that because on the tour, they would tell us all about the breeding experiments that they would do. They were talking about how they were trying to figure out how to breed the Hawaiian day octopus. This is a different octopus species than the one who's being farmed over in the Canary Islands. And nobody had quite cracked that breeding cycle yet for this particular species. And so they were talking about how all of their experiments had gotten the babies to live to, at the time, this was last year, early last year, the babies had lived only to about 13 days. And they thought this was a huge victory that they had raised them for that long. And they were trying different sorts of feeding methods, different sort of sea animals, like they were raising hermit crabs to try to feed to the babies and just trying to figure out how to keep the babies living long enough. And the goal they said was that once they figured that out, it would be a useful tool to reduce the strain on octopus fishing in the wild. So it didn't take long for me to kind of piece together what that meant if they would be supplying this breeding technology or research to people to be able to farm them that would be able to supply the octopuses as meat so that fewer were caught from the wild. But I don't think most of the tourists kind of connected those dots. They just were really fascinated with meeting the octopuses and touching them and hearing, you know, facts about octopuses. Yeah, well, people tend not to think too deeply about these issues. That's a really fascinating story that they were telling people and telling themselves, I guess, that there are these wild animals and we love them and they're being hunted. So that's terrible. So let's breed a bunch of them in captivity and kill them instead. Like, 
it's it's another thing revealing, you know, how people think about animals in all sorts of bizarre ways. All right. So these were called day octopuses, as you pointed out. Are they different than other octopuses? And actually, just in the context of this question, tell us more about octopuses. Like, who are these animals? I know they are probably the most mysterious animal on the planet. They just look like they're not from this planet. Like, they're just so fascinating. And, you know, people probably are a little familiar about with them because of the movie, My Octopus Teacher, which a lot of people probably have seen. And that, I think, really brought attention on them. But just tell us about them. Who are they? How much do we know about them? And they're so cool. Like, just just (laughs) tell us who they are. Yeah, definitely. I really expected my first time meeting an octopus to be, you know, out in the ocean snorkeling or something, especially after seeing my octopus teacher and seeing how incredibly complex these beings are. And, you know, while I was watching them and seeing them in real time, like you could tell that they were sort of contemplating every interaction with the humans who were watching them like zoo animals, because that's basically what it was. But they are extremely smart. And I think we're only just getting beneath the surface of octopus and generally cephalopod intelligence. There's a lot of stories I've read about octopuses in captivity will actually kind of get to know each of the captors. And if one of them, they're not particularly fond of the captor, I've heard that there was one octopus who would specifically spray water at a specific captor who would come along and not any of the other (laughs) scientists who were there at this facility. It was just the one. So they have the ability to identify human faces. They've also been recently documented to dream, it seems, changing color while they're sleeping, which is pretty amazing. They also have, which I think is really important to note, we kind of think of them as solitary animals. And I think that's part of why these facilities justify having them in these tiny tanks each by themselves. But really out in the ocean, they can have really intricate social networks and hierarchies. Even the males will actually box each other over territory. And so their needs really can't be met in a small barren tank that's isolated from the entire rest of their species. Yeah, wow. They're just so fascinating. You know, I had a conversation recently with somebody who was talking about insect farming. I am going to bring this around. And, and, you know, there's something about the whole insect issue, which I understand. And he was a philosopher and talking about all the research that's going into insect sentience. <coughs> But sometimes it becomes frustrating because, as I said him, I mean, obviously, we need to know this, but people don't even care about cows. How the hell are we going to get them to care about insects? And he said, and this is why I think it's relevant to the octopuses, I think sometimes it's easier to get people to care about an animal that they're very unfamiliar with and whom they're not enculturated to just think, well, they're for us, they're for us. So... Even though I think octopuses, you know, especially because of that movie, which reached a lot of people, really are one of those animals that really light people up. Have you found that like in dealing with like the other tourists who were there that there's something so fascinating about them because they are so different? I think so. I think that people expect these qualities of, you know, intelligence and sentience in obviously dogs and cats, and they kind of try to maybe not notice it as much in animals they consume because of the cognitive dissonance and facing that reality is hard for them. But I think when you come across this animal who looks almost alien and to find out how complex this animal really is, I think it 
really shocks people because they realize that these qualities are not just uniquely, you know, dog, cat and human. There's whole entire worlds out there. And we just really are only on the cusp of understanding these other animals. So I really did see, especially in the children's spaces who were there, like really lighting up and connecting with the animals. And of course, these children didn't know kind of behind the scenes what was happening here. But obviously, there are better ways to connect with octopuses like seeing them in the wild. But I think, yeah, it definitely was an eye-opening experience for a lot of people to connect with them. Yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, there are a lot of reasons to do this, but you probably also have a lot of different things you could be working on. Why did you decide to devote time to this? Well, I run a blog called The Every Animal Project. It's sort of my side passion outside of my day job. And I've really been dedicated for the last several years to telling animal stories on a really individual level, just kind of showcasing their inner lives, the stories that they experience, things that often are really overlooked, like the story of a pig on a transport truck to slaughter or insects like cicadas who sort of swarmed my yard one summer a few years ago as they came up from their 17 years underground. And I really just wanted to expose people to these animals they're not really thinking about day to day, because I think when you can make that really emotional, more profound connection through writing. It really captivates people. So I already had that project going. And I also really have a strong passion for the oceans and sea life. I'm a free diver and a mermaid, a hobbyist mermaid. So I obviously already feel really connected to octopuses and other sea creatures. So it just felt like this natural fit to go and see what was going on, especially, you know, right down the road from where my parents live. I felt kind of this obligation to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. And I think that does like kind of talk to that thought I had that this kind of serves as a model for the kind of campaign that somebody might get interested in working on, you know, that kind of think globally, act locally. This is exactly that act locally. When something happens in in your neighborhood, maybe it's up to you to, to do something about it. I also wanted to talk to you because the way you did this, and partly because you have connections within the movement, you work within the movement, it, it just seems like a really wonderful example of combining grassroots and institutional advocacy. And you managed to get a lot of interest from other organizations within the movement, even though you were the centerpiece of trying to make this happen. So what was the first step? All right, you went to this place, you were like, oh dear, I have to do something about this. What was your first step in trying to publicize it and getting other people involved? Yeah, well, I had a bit of experience because I've previously worked in undercover investigations in the movement, not as an investigator, but as someone who takes in evidence from those investigators and reviews it, organizes it, kind of creates a strong case to send to authorities as well as to send out to the public to alert them to what's going on. So I kind of already had that knowledge, but it's not a really hard thing to do for anybody who, you know, has a camera and can visit a place and can, you know, have a little bit of writing skills because basically I conducted the investigation. I took the photos and videos. I made sure to have kind of questions in the back of my mind that I wanted to ask the tour guide to get to the bottom of what was really happening. The kinds of questions that tourists might not know to ask, but things like, 
well, what is the purpose of the breeding? What do you plan to do with the knowledge once you have it? And just really probing to try to get to the bottom of their plans. And then I spent a good amount of time conducting my own research, looking at government records, reading all the news articles I could about this facility and really just digging into everything that was available out there. Then I just put it together into my blog along with the footage and the photos. And I did plan to send it out to media. So when I published it the first time, it was World Octopus Day last year. And that was when I first sent it out to media. I actually didn't get media coverage on the first round, which isn't abnormal, I think, in this movement. It sometimes can be really hard to break through to media. But that is where kind of the rallying together other groups and other people really helped because as soon as more people and organizations started noticing this and reaching out to the Hawaiian government and we got lots of comments submitted shortly after that was when we found out that there was a cease and desist letter being issued telling the facility that it needed to shut down because it didn't have the proper permits and I don't think that would have happened had we not had that big grassroots response because it would have been easier for the government to just kind of, you know, look away and not really deal with it. Yeah, no, that is the key. I mean, people can't do things just on their own, but you show the leadership. I mean, you have to just show the leadership so that you can entice these other organizations to say, yeah, we can get involved in this. This is interesting. Somebody's in charge here. So was it first Compassion and World Farming that got involved? They had originally written a little bit about the farm in their larger octopus farming report, which was one of the ways I had heard about it. So they were one of the ones that started posting about it, as well as plant-based treaty. And then all the people from my blog who were tweeting and submitting comments. And I think between all of these groups and people, that was kind of when the government realized that something was happening that they needed to look into. It seemed to me like one of the things that might have uh, awakened the government to the issue. You also got the Harvard Legal Clinic involved, too. Right. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, legal trouble is the kind of thing that government, potential legal trouble is the kind of thing that is noticed by local governments. So how did that come about and what did they do to kind of move things forward? Yeah. So that was, I think, really one of the most crucial pieces after the cease and desist letter happened. We knew that the facility was shut down to octopus farming for the time being, but we didn't know if they would be able to get the permits that they were missing and reopen. They claimed that was what they were trying to do. Additionally, I knew that they had at least claimed in some government meeting documents that they were also breeding bobtail squids who weren't visible at the facility, but there were a number of tanks sort of off limits that I guessed that those might be housing the bobtail squids. And those bobtail squids didn't require the same permitting. So to my knowledge, the facility was continuing to breed those and they had already figured out that breeding process. So they were actually able to profit off of the ink of the squids. So I was really concerned that this was kind of allowed to continue going on, even though the octopus piece had been temporarily shut down. And luckily, that's kind of when the Harvard Clinic jumped in. Sentient Media also had a reporter who jumped in, and both groups were basically immediately submitting FOIA requests, trying to collect as much information as they could. They found out a lot of really troubling information, and then Harvard actually got together a letter with 
a bunch of cultural practitioners from Hawaii to sign it, which I think is really critical too, because Hawaii has a long, you know, troubled history of Americans coming in and kind of taking over and using resources. And so I think it was really important to include the Native Hawaiians in this effort and to know that they were concerned about this as well. And I think the issues that Harvard brought to light really forced the state to keep looking into this. Ultimately, the decision wasn't even really a legal one. They just decided not to renew the lease. So we don't actually know what exactly it was that convinced them, but they decided to not renew the lease. And so the facility had to shut down completely. Yeah, maybe they didn't even know what it was that convinced them. Maybe they just knew this is going to be trouble. Right. I mean, I just think it's such a great combination of you doing all of the legwork, getting it started, putting it together, and then these organizations feeling comfortable bringing to bear their much greater resources to add to, to kind of pile on. I'm sure the, the the work that Sentient Media did was great too, because they're so thorough in doing their investigation and, and gathering information. So it was really a, a great synergy of efforts, I felt. I, I know that Harvard also got involved in the Thule Elk situation in California, which reminds me of this kind of, because it started out as a local, basically wildlife issue that got bigger because other organizations, you know, kind of got involved in it. There's a growing number of animal law legal clinics. Do you think they'll be a good resource in these kind of campaigns? Because they're always looking for cool things for their students to do. I definitely think so. I mean, I had a little bit of legal experience just from, you know, past cases I had worked, but I didn't as an individual have the time and resources to really push on that angle to look up all of the different laws that could have been invoked here and all of the different, you know, submitting all the FOIAs and finding out all the different potential violations. And I think, you know, this is what they're naturally skilled at. And this was a perfect case for them to jump in. I think that that really was what ultimately moved the needle. And I would love to see this in many other cases around the country or world for sure. Yeah, I think it's a great because all of these students also had the opportunity to learn from doing this. You know, it's probably the first time most of them had done a FOIA complaint. And also it was a victory. There's nothing better in getting students involved and excited than <laughs> giving them something that they can win at. I think We Animals was also involved. Is that right? Yes, they were really instrumental in kind of the media exposure piece. They uh, took in my photos and videos and actually featured them in their collection. So now I've become one of their featured photographers, which is such a huge honor for me as somebody who I consider myself an amateur in terms of photography. But that was really critical in getting more media outlets to see and use the photos. As soon as I had them up there, I was getting more media requests, various groups wanting to also use my photos in their own campaigns, which is great because we don't really have that I can think of any other photographic evidence from an octopus farm simply because it's such a new industry that hopefully doesn't grow. Hopefully we don't need to take more photos of it. But I think just them helping to get exposure for the photos and videos, which are such a key tool in this whole project, was really helpful. Yeah, you had mentioned that at the beginning, you tried to get press and you didn't get anywhere. And, you know, things built and you gathered resources. So tell us what kind of press you ended up getting 
once you, I mean, I, I assume that one of the reasons is not only that you had all these photographs, but they were easily accessible on a very accessible website where the press could just grab them and use them. Was that one of the things that particularly helped? And what else helped? What kind of press did you get and how did you get it? Yeah. So as soon as the cease and desist letter happened, that was when media started to get interested because here was this facility regularly conducting tours for years and suddenly it stopped. So at first it was all of the local Hawaiian outlets. One of my favorite interviews was with a TV channel there and they ran some of my footage, which showed the tour guide admitting that they had these octopus whisperers, as she called them who would go out and knew how to catch the octopuses and bring them in to be used. And that ran immediately after the owner of the facility had been claiming that they didn't go out and catch octopuses because that was the primary violation they were being cited on was that they didn't have correct permits to be able to go out and catch octopuses from the West Hawaii waters. But the tour guide literally admitted it right there. And so that aired. And I think that really stirred the controversy a lot. Yeah. And then we got more national and international coverage as other outlets started to connect this to the larger farm in the Canary Islands and kind of cite it as an example of something that was unfolding while this larger debate was happening. So I think that was really key. This was just kind of like one micro example of the larger issue and to show that this kind of progress could happen, I think really helped pick up some momentum for the groups that are running the Canary Islands campaign. And so media from all over was then covering the Hawaii closure. And not all of it was referencing my investigation, but it was just great to see it spread so much because I thought that this, you know, when I started, I thought that this was just going to be one little facility that nobody really cared much about, but it turned out to really tie into an international issue. That's what's so powerful about it. And I guess, I mean, I guess you can make some predictions about when that's going to happen, but to some extent, you just don't know. You have to like take the opportunities when they present themselves. That footage that you got, did you get that surreptitiously or were they just allowing you to record them saying things that later got them in hot water? Yeah, I, I recorded it all openly, just kind of posing as a normal tourist. I think for me, it would be hard to, to pose, you know, secretly as an investigator in that way. I've never done that before. But yeah, the places that I visit, I always am just a curious person asking questions and recording and nobody ever questions that. And I think it just shows that using some, you know, some curiosity and discernment, you can kind of really start to get to the bottom of things that they're not openly talking about right on the surface. So is this the end? Is it over? Are they fighting it? Are they doing anything else nefarious as far as you know? Do you need to keep an eye on them? I will definitely keep an eye on them. But from what I know now, the owner claimed that they would be pivoting to doing eco tours where they take people out on boats and watch octopuses. So as long as that doesn't turn into like, they're catching the octopuses and yeah. like holding them yeah. on the boats. I think that'll be perfectly fine. So as of right now, this is the end of this chapter, but I think it really does serve as a really critical example for what could have happened if it had gone forward. They could have 
created an entirely new factory farming industry for a species who has never been farmed before. And that is what we're about to see in the Canary Islands. So I think it's really great for folks to use this example and pivot to helping with that campaign or working in their own communities, trying to get bans on octopus farming, which is sort of symbolic. Not every place is going to start opening an octopus farm, but if you can get more of those bans and just showing local governments and state governments and maybe even country governments are taking a stand on this, it'll be a really powerful sort of message to the budding industry. Yeah. And, you know, aside from doing that for octopus, octopuses. I I tend to feel like this is a model that goes beyond that. I think I alluded to this before, finding a local issue and a particular type of wild animal to focus on and to really bring to the fore. Do you think this is an opening to get people's attention or at least get some of them to see animals in general? You know, is it bigger? See animals in general in a bigger light? Are octopuses and other wild animals, you know, locally beloved for or whatever, wild animals kind of the gateway drug <laughs> animal? You know, we tend to focus on vegan advocacy so much and on getting people to see farm animals as real. I wonder if it's easier to get them to see a wild animal as real and whether that can spread to a more general attitude about animals. Do you think there's that opening? I certainly hope so. I think that octopuses are maybe seen as very unique because of their color changing abilities and the new things that we found out about them. But really, all animals have these really remarkable traits and abilities that we just haven't really focused on or studied. I think another really great example are fishes. And obviously, they're the most killed of all the types of animals we eat. We can't even count the number of fish who are killed every year because we just count them in their weight. And I think still people are not really making the connection that fish feel pain despite that being you know, so scientifically established now. And we can see them using tools like using one shell to crack something else open. And so I'm hoping that, you know, getting people to think about octopuses, which most people I think would have been okay with maybe trying squid or calamari or octopus when they're on vacation or something. Maybe they don't eat it regularly, but hopefully now they after hearing about all of this, they would think twice about that. And yeah, maybe it will be a gateway species for them to start thinking about fishes and then maybe pigs and chickens and other animals. Yeah, it would be weird to stop eating fish first. Uh, Everybody stops eating fish last, but maybe that could happen. I mean, obviously, that's not going to be everybody. Not everybody makes the connections. And you mentioned before how fascinated the children were. And it would be nice if, you know, for children, I think their, their minds are more open. And the idea that this could be the thing that makes them just start thinking about animals in general. I, I think it's possible. There's so much less resistance on people's part to caring about an animal that they don't eat, that you can get in there and they can see them so much more clearly that you don't get that resistance. So I think it's a very powerful campaign. I'm really, really glad you did it. I'm really glad you you told us all about it. I'm really glad you recorded everything, you know, and 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 made it clear like what all the steps were here because I think this is very replicable activism. And there's an exciting thing going on in the movement that that the organizations are getting bigger and there's a lot more going on at an institutional level, but we also have to keep thinking of ways for the enormous number of grassroots activists in this movement who don't work in the movement can be really effective. I think this is, you happen to be both, but I think this is really 
an example of the kind of thing that one person can accomplish. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about what you do in, in, in your day job, but maybe we'll wait for our bonus content to do that because we've taken up enough of your time here. But thank you so much for telling us about it. Yeah, thank you so much. And I think you really hit home, you know, that point that it, it also can just become really overwhelming, I think, when you're trying to tackle all of factory farming and all of the animal abuses in the world and really, you know, doing that day after day. And it's hard to see your progress when you're really looking at that massive scale. So I do really think that focusing in on a local issue that involves animals that can really scale up to connect with larger issues can be really, really powerful. And that's, you know, kind of what I aim to do here. And I hope that it can inspire other people to do similar things. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I was really looking forward to this interview and I'm really excited to have heard all about it. So thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you enjoy the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We understand that not everyone is in a position to contribute financially. And of course, I love you all no matter what, but we have had a rather challenging year. So if you are able, we could really use your help. And this is the perfect time to make a donation because between now and December 31st, all contributions will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000 if we make it to the 25,000. And so listen to me, we have so many exciting announcements. We have revamped our membership options. We would be totally honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. So visit ourhenhouse.org slash support to check out our new tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can be a part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Hen House Heroes, or of course our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include weekly bonus content, access to our engaging flock exclusive spaces in our online community, and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me live in the audience for a virtual recording of an Our Hen House podcast interview where you can meet the guest and ask questions for the bonus segment. And listen also, since we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you appreciate our hen house, and if you believe in our mission to mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, and if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of independent media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be matched. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated and tax deductible to the full extent of the law. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash support. That's ourhenhouse.org slash support. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us and leave reviews where you are able to on social media. Just find us at Our Hen House. And if you're one of the listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast. 
to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Walenska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so, so much for your support, your compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye.